you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good evening, Kaleo. Good to see you all. Honored to be with you. Honored to be together, as always. Uh, I'm going to begin with a land acknowledgement, and I want to tell you a little something about it before I share it with you. Uh, It's been a journey for me to figure out the best way to do that as a white man as opposed to the way Aaron chooses to do it as a black woman. And so I've been wrestling that out, reading a few things, thinking through some things, and so I think I've put together how I'd like to do that, which ends with an invitation for all of us to live a certain way as well. Um, You might also have some questions at the end of it. Uh, We can talk about that afterwards, because there's resources. You'll need resources, too. Uh, this This is how it goes. It goes like this. I'd like to begin our time by acknowledging that this building and our bodies currently reside on the ancestral land of the Thanaotham nation. We honor their elders, both past and present, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We see you, we honor you, and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where Creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders, past, present, and emerging. We know that indigenous peoples have lived in what we now call Phoenix for millennia. And we acknowledge that for hundreds of years, the doctrine of discovery has provided theological justification and a legal basis for Christian governments to invade and seize indigenous lands and dominate indigenous peoples. Our hope as the people of Kaleo is to live the harmony way. The harmony way is the phrase Cherokee theologian Randy Woodley, who was a professor of mine in seminary, uses to describe the ethic of living as one with creation and all people. That's what the scriptures call shalom or shalom justice. So we ask people who come to this place to consider the ongoing impacts of the doctrine of discovery and the legacies of violence, displacement, migration, and settlement that bring us here today. And so we humbly ask, will you join us on the Harmony Way? It's our hope and our commitment that around Kaleo we create space to practice the ways of Jesus as the multi-ethnic family of God that we are always growing in such a vision is that. And so fittingly, our passage is going to speak a bit about this as well, and that was probably the crux for me to say, "Ah, yeah, that's right, I need to say this as well. So our passage for this Sunday is one that's likely familiar to to many of us who at least have some history with the scriptures. Um, However, it's not always for the best reasons that we're familiar with this passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our passage, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Then I'm going to pray, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to seek to find the theme of liberation in a passage that is often used for oppression. You intrigued? All right. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 reads like this. Jesus is speaking, by the way. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth. 
Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you again that you are a God who is with us. We thank you that you're a God who does not require us to do something in a certain way in our time gathered here for you to meet us. You already desire to do that. And so we invite you to, to teach us. We invite you to reveal your love to us. We invite you to draw us near to you and to one another as a community as we wrestle with challenges and inspirations and convictions and frustrations in these passages, Lord. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to perceive and hearts to receive what it is you have for us. I pray above all that my words would be for you and from you and anything I say that's not, we would forget very quickly, Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this passage, uh, it's, it's a very personal passage for me, but not because I've implemented the guidance it suggests all too often. Maybe I should do more of that. To be honest, that's kind of what I came away from with this as well. But because my key experience with Matthew 18 was when it was weaponized against me out of context and as a form of spiritualized power. I actually have come to learn that my story with Matthew 18 is not unique. There are many others who have shared with me their own stories of being harmed by a pastor or a church leader and then harmed again when that leader used Matthew 18 to dodge responsibility and protect their own reputation. Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer wrote a book called A Church Called Tove. The subtitle is really where it's at for our purposes here too. It says, forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. You can take a look at that afterwards. But in this book, what they did is they offer a short reflection on what they call, quote unquote, spinning Matthew 18. So again, their own research in writing this book was they collected multiple stories of this unfolding. This book in particular, when I first read it a couple years ago, awakened me to a refreshed and liberating reading of Matthew 18, as I believe Kaleo seeks to be exactly what the subtitle of this book calls for. And so as we're going to make our way through this passage, my hope is that we would do so with this spirit-filled desire to cultivate what the subtitle says, a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. May that be so among us. On the Inverse podcast, which some of us are familiar with, it's hosted by Drew Hart and Jared McKenna. And before they begin the actual like interview with their guests, they ask their guests this question to open the conversation and kind of set the tone for the way in which they'll intersect the passages. It says this, was your first experience with the scriptures oppressive or liberating? And it's so interesting listening to their guests respond to this question, trying to find the different places in their history that help them locate what the scriptures have meant to them. And of course, as any answer to a question like that would be, it's this complicated slew of answers that at once was liberating and at once was oppressive and it weaved its way in and out of their life as they went. 
But for our time today, what I hope to do is help us view this passage, at least for a moment in time, as one that's liberating. So before I guide us through the verses, I'm going to draw our attention just briefly to a handful of words and terms that appear in the passage. And depending on the translation, depending on how we've heard it, I'm reading from the NLT translation, by the way. So if you're like trying to keep up with what's going on, you can look at that. But a couple different words show up that I think are important for the context of the passage. The first one is either believer or brother. Depending on your translation, it starts with that, right? And that just means, that's why it's translated believer in the NLT. It's, it's for those in a believing community together. That's, that's who the context is that Jesus is addressing here. People who are in a believing community together. Okay, and then there's words that are a little tricky as we all go on our journey of trying to deconstruct what we've been given and reconstruct something new that is, in fact, promoting healing, right? Sin or sin against you. I'm like, we can just think of this, that there was an injustice done. There was harm done. And this act of, of harm or injustice has not only separated that person who's done the harm from God in that moment and then ultimately their community, it's caused the other person who's been harmed or the people who've been harmed to question their own participation in God's community as well. It's made it a bit dis orienting when sin enters a space like that and then there's the word church in jesus's language here which is interesting because there was no church at this point in time right that this was a different word ecclesia is the word so it's really like a gathering of the called ones a gather, a community of people trying to practice a goodness culture, if you will. Tov is this ancient Hebrew word that means like the holistic goodness. You could even think of it as shalom. And so it's this community that's committed to this way of being in the world. Certainly Matthew's writing his gospel looking back, knowing that churches are forming, so he sees the beginning of them. But the context of it is not like churches we think of it or are participating in right in this moment of time. Simply a gathering of people trying to follow the way of God, if you will. And then there's what seems like a pretty derogatory statement. Treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. I'll get into that a little bit more. But the idea here would be this would be language that would say there's an outsider now among you who is not committed to the community and the culture of cultivating the goodness of God. They're, they're actively now not involved. They're on the outside looking in. Okay. They have not ascribed to what this community is living for and why they're living this way. Again, like I said, I'll get more into that as well. So we're going to embrace the task with the, those definitions floating around in our heads. Uh, trying to understand and liberate the passage through the lens of, and this is so important, the lens of the liberating love of Jesus. Jesus is the one who's telling us this. Jesus is telling us this in the context of Matthew 18, in which he's pretty much talking for the entire chapter. All right, so all of this is like situated in the words of Jesus. And we know, we seek to know who Jesus is to his core, as one who loves us and liberates us to be free in community with one another and with him. So think of that as we go. I'm going to use a bunch of commentary work from the New Testament scholar Craig Keener, but I'm not going to try to quote him and tell you when I'm using him all the time. So let's walk through this verse by verse together. Verse 15 reads like this. If another believer sins against you, 
go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. This seems a little bit straightforward, right? Seems like pretty clear on a lot of levels again, right? Just the standard ancient usage of the word brother could just simply be translated to believer. It's a member of one's religious community, the church. That's why they're saying that. But again, we don't have church as the context for what we're being built into here, right? This is Jesus, who is Jewish and a Jewish teacher at that. So in the context of the Jewish communities he would have been raised in and learned from and trained in and then was hoping to move us towards what it intended to be all along, it was often preferred, that this is hilarious, but often preferred that the offender would seek forgiveness first. We're like, duh, right? Wouldn't all communities and relationships be so much healthier if the one who'd committed an offense would come forward and seek forgiveness first. Yes, that would be ideal. Same. Jewish law, though, also emphasized this proper giving and receiving of rebuke. So that was common amongst Jewish communities where you might step in and say, you have in fact offended me. That was a norm. So Jesus is just speaking a norm here. And then at the core, when you read something just like that first verse, you see that repentance, forgiveness, and restoration are at the heart of it. Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And this makes sense, again, when you think of who's saying these things. This is also the heart of the way of Jesus. He sets out saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Find forgiveness, be free, so that you might then live in restored community with all things. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. If only it was as simple as that. Because verse 16 then goes on and says, if this doesn't go well, what happens next? Verse 16 says, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now the requirement of two witnesses remained this like standard judicial procedure throughout early Christianity. You could even, uh, let's see, I wrote them down. You could look at 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5. There's some examples of that in there, like gather up witnesses so that we can actually talk about this. The key here being, though, witnesses of the offense, right? A key, a key story that maybe like makes you think of that is the woman caught in adultery, right? That, Again, not everybody shows up who had committed the offense. We're wondering how they were actually witnesses of the offense, for that matter. And what do they have in hand? Stones. We'll get to that in a second as well. Put that and save it. Two or three witnesses of the offense come along with you. Which in practicality also begins to make some sense, right? You're like, this is... This really needs to be taken care of. Some other people are privy to what had happened. Let's, let's go and let's speak to this person with the goals of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Verse 17 offers this. Things are not going well, and so the person still refuses to listen. If that's so, Jesus says, take your case to the church, right? Meaning the community, the gathered community of people believing. Then, if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt 
tax collector. First of all, I'm not sure if any of us even have a scenario imagined where all of this transpires, so I think that's like one interesting component to this as well, right? But it seems that Jesus is saying neither outsiders nor the sinner should continue under the delusion that this person, this offender, is truly a follower of Jesus. They're saying you're not like what you need to be in this context. So therefore, treat that person as you would one who's outside the community, a pagan or a corrupt tax collector, which again, I, this is what the passage says. It seems extreme to me as well, right? Essentially, these are people to be avoided is kind of what it goes, right? Which is interesting because this is the moment, right, where like the implications of what Jesus is saying feel really extreme, maybe even overly harsh, probably like, what? Avoid them? Call, call, treat them like a corrupt tax collector? Right? Which is like the worst diss that you could have given at that time. But regardless of what we feel about that at this moment, we do know this. This was the result of intense conflict in the community. You can just imagine that. So somebody was so offended, hurt, sinned against to start this whole process to bring other people into it, and now it's before the entire community. Which again, sometimes I think this like vision we construct in our head is maybe this big, big, huge community. It's probably like this. And that makes me feel real uneasy in that context, right? Like if we're all like, hey, we gotta gather around. Everybody just come up, come up here, gather around. We got somebody who's being unrepentant. I mean, it's, it feels unsettling to say the least. But maybe healing and restorative if there's forgiveness and repentance. Okay, perhaps then, a reflection from these words of Je- on, on these words of Jesus is helpful if we think of this. I kept going back to this context of Micah 6.8. It was like another way to think about the ways of Jesus. What are the things that the Lord requires of us, Micah 6.8 says, that we would do justice, that we would love mercy, and that we would walk humbly with God. That that would be, that's at least a way, I think, to envision what all of this might look like in trying to restore relationship with God and one another in a community. If the community of people follow Jesus in such a way, which seems to be what Matthew is moving us towards, right? It's following Jesus in this way, where they seek justice and they love mercy and they walk humbly with God, perhaps that's how we get to restoration on the other side of all of the hard work in between. But this is what we know. If there's ever a point at which harm is done, sin is done against, we can't make it forward without repentance. When there's no repentance, there is no restoration. I think that's a really hard word, to be honest, as I start to think of my own relationships for that matter. They might still exist. They could still be relationships, but I doubt they'll be restored in this vision that Jesus has for them. These things, the passage seems to be communicating to us, are that these testaments to the wholehearted following of Jesus. So it brings to mind a couple of examples to maybe, if you're lingering in the space of more like personal relationship too, is probably sometimes how we do this. It, it brings to mind this example that's kind of served as a a litmus test for the the liberating work of healing communities. It's been an ongoing conversation in some of those spaces kind of as like a 
a real life thought problem, I suppose. And, and it's this, can the, can the ICE agent and the undocumented person sit down at the table of the Lord together? Just think about it, we're not, we're not to vote, we're not voting on that. And that's even more hits home at times here in, in Phoenix as well, right? Can the ICE agent and the undocumented person sit down at the table of the Lord, the communion table? Can they share communion together? And there's multiple ways to think about this for sure. But these two people, the ICE agent and the undocumented person, they're not reconciled to community with one another until the agent relinquishes their power and commitment to a system that does harm to God's people. How can one be reconciled to God if they're not also able to be reconciled to people within their community? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that they've got to go and change that right away. I'm saying they can exist safely at the communion table of the Lord if one is seeking to take them and move them to another space. That brings this like intense realization to what might be transpiring here or again it's a thought experiment you kind of know where i'm leaning but it's still a thought experiment if we were to take it back a century or two what is to be said of the slaveholder who claims to follow jesus but continues to enslave people How should they be treated when confronted with the sin of their enslaving? If they do not repent and seek forgiveness and move toward restoration, then this passage seems to be saying that the community must avoid them because they aren't really following him at all. I think that context is at least more eye-opening to say, you're right, that, that's a bit more intense. Those two cannot exist in community together until a change has been made. And so I, I suppose I bring these two extreme examples on some level to like make it more real on how we think about what we have to navigate in community with one another, especially a community that seeks to be the multi-ethnic family of God. What then does this have to do with how we, those who choose to make their community among the people of Kaleo, like what does this have to do with how we act and live? And again, I think that words of Micah 6, 8 become instructive here. Because we're invited to, in community, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And I think that allows us to like kind of zoom back a little bit and go, how then do we approach that in this context? But we still got three verses. Verse 18 all of a sudden jumps into the tense moment of trying to navigate what all those things mean to a word puzzle. It's a word puzzle in the midst of all of these words on conflict resolution. And it reads like this. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. 
The common way you've maybe heard that said is whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed on heaven. Whatever is binded on earth will be binded in heaven, right? Which, again, we don't know what that means either. At least I didn't. Like, I don't even talk like that. I don't know what this means, right? So Craig Keener is especially helpful on this. He said the verb tenses literally represent the cumbersome, whatever you bind shall have been bound, which still doesn't make any sense, right? It's still cumbersome, which is his point. So it says it could mean in the context, it probably suggests this. This is how he says it. He says that their earthly action followed the heavenly action. Their earthly action followed the heavenly action. So by removing an unrepentant sinner from Jesus' community, they were merely ratifying the heavenly court's decree, if you will. Remember, this is like very judicial language, too, that was tied in this. To give you another metaphor from the way John writes, this was removing branches already dead on the vine. Binding and loosing, in our case, forbidding and permitting. They're referring to what Keener says is judicial authority of gathered Christians to decide cases on the basis of God's law. They're they're trying to figure out how do you navigate something like this in your community and still follow God together. And so most scholars then would just say this is a passage that applies to church discipline. And I think it's fair to say we are not all that often familiar with cases of church discipline that play out like this. Especially with the first couple parts done even well, for that matter. I think it's fair to say, too, right, for the purpose of finding this passage liberating, it's a good reminder that such processes were taught by Jesus to create pathways that would always protect those with less power. He was always trying to create ways in which the community would care for those who exist on the margins. I mean, at this point in time, almost the entirety of these people who are following Jesus are like in the 95% of the poor who live there. So the community as a whole, Jesus seems to be saying, and this is where I'm interpreting it to take it, is not defined on the basis of the leadership alone. But this community is supposed to exist as a single organism that collectively must seek the common good of all. The common good begins and always has with God at the margins. And so if the work of the community is not good news to the least and the lost and the left out, it's not good news at all. The kingdom has not come in that context as Jesus has been preaching it. And here's why I think this bears itself out in the final two verses, 19 and 20, bringing this together. Jesus then says, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Which these passages, or verses, excuse me, probably we've heard also consistently but not necessarily tied to the context that they're in right now. So they're starting to mean something different to us now. We're trying to like pull apart this convoluted passage. And just for the record, this was the passage on the lectionary. I would not be out here trying to preach this passage. So we're trying to make our way through it 
as well. It's not like a dying passion of mine to figure this thing out, although now it kind of is. So here, here's what I think is going on here. Jesus is talking about these witnesses gathered together, right? And the witnesses that come together to ask anything on earth, the Father will do wherever two or three are gathered, there I am. The witnesses are to pray. That's what they're doing together, asking God together. They're not to act vindictively. Now, I think that's like such a mind-blowing concept, I suppose. And so that two or three gathered in prayer from these verses 19 and 20, they must be, Keener says, the two or three witnesses of verse 16. Like that's, that's so important to, if you catch that, right? You go to a person, they don't receive it, they don't listen, they're like, I didn't offend you, get out of here, whatever. You're like, I got to bring two witnesses or three witnesses who, who can help me win this person back to restored relationship. Those two or three are now the two or three gathered together asking the Father to do something. And Jesus is promising to be with them as that happens. Now the matter that they should pray for is what? Ask anything of the Father. He's doing it. What is it? They're praying for the offender. This is so in line with Jesus' upside down kingdom of loving enemies. It blurs the lines. He's still creating safety, though, for people, right? So this is, this is striking, and I, and I think this is actually the heart of the good news. And honestly, this is where I wanted to get this whole thing to anyway, because I think it liberates what Jesus is up to in the context of community. All of this is in contrast to Deuteronomy 17, 6, and 7 where the two or three witnesses who gather were to be the two or three who cast the first stones. That's what's happening for the woman caught in adultery. They came with stones, not with praying hearts, looking for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. In this case, the witnesses are to be the first to pray. The moment the offended person or party invites the witnesses in, they come on behalf of that person to pray that God would bring about repentance so there might be forgiveness, so that the community of people might be restored to God and one another. That's what they're coming to do. And even more so in this case, the whole context of Matthew 18 is forgiveness. The story after this is a whole story on the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells. Because Peter goes, well, how much am I supposed to forgive after he hears this story or these words? Well, here's the power then of Jesus' promise. He promises to be with them, which is like at the core of what Jesus is all about. Right, he says, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. Jesus himself is the presence of God. An ancient Jewish saying promised God's presence not only for ten males, which was like the minimum prerequisite for a synagogue, but for even two or three gathered to study his law. Here Jesus is filling the role of what was the Shekinah, right? God's presence in the traditional Jewish vision of it. Jewish teachers often called God the place, 
or the omnipresent one. And who does Matthew say Jesus is at the outset of his gospel? He says he's Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus has been the entire time Matthew's been writing all of this stuff down. He's just reiterating it through the story of Jesus one more time. Jesus is saying you will have communion with the one. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. You will have communion with the one who is always in communion and always seeking to restore us to communion. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20 has with it an ultimate vision of restoration. We might call it reconciliation. We might call it communal mutuality. We might call it the harmony way to live as one with all people and all creation. This is like the whole Bible. This is like the whole thing that God intended from the beginning in the garden to what Jesus will come again and restore. And I think that's where the tension lies in this even more so for me. Not because it's been used against me, not because it seems almost impossibly hard, not because we're not totally even sure how it plays out among all the systemic injustice of the world. It's that this passage says there's probably going to be restoration, but we have not experienced that yet. How many of us can name one relationship, just one? It could be a whole people or it could be a person that we have not yet experienced the movements of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. We long for it because Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. And it doesn't happen. And much of it won't. And that's like the heartbreak of the whole thing. And so all we have to lean on then is the promise Jesus makes at the end. I'm with you. What does Jesus say at the very end of Matthew's gospel? The last phrase, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise running through this whole thing. And I do think then, as we wait, the hope is this, that there are these brief moments in the history of the world, little pockets of communities that exist as a shining city on a hill, as Matthew wrote about a glimpse in that moment in time into a restoration of all things, a beloved community, as we call it, reconciled to God and to one another, the multi-ethnic family of God present for one moment in time, for one day in time even. It could be possible is what those little moments and little communities say. And so that's why, as I continued to study this passage, I kept finding myself returning to Micah 6, 8. What is good and what does the Lord require of us? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. I don't know how it all works out either, but I know our attempts are rooted in living in such a way as that, that we would be a community of people who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. So I'm going to give Jesus the final word. Let him speak to you, however that might look like. So we'll just be still in his presence. Could you just even ask Jesus, you could say, Jesus, in light of all of this, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? We'll let Jesus say that. So let's be still in the presence of Jesus who loves us.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for being present here with us. Thank you for speaking to us. However it is you do that, give us ears to hear you and empower us with your loving spirit to go forth as individuals and a community of people who act justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with you. To you be the glory. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.